you pray with me? Father, we have really no words to express or explain how much greatness you have poured out on us. For you are so good, so merciful. We praise you. We thank you for the cross. We have tried to sing your praise this morning. Words are not enough. So we sing endless hallelujahs to your holy name. The cross is spoken. We are forgiven. So Lord, now would your words speak to us as well. Through your spirit, speak to our hearts. Let the words of Jesus ring down through the ages to us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. When you sin, and you know you've sinned, how do you feel in the moments that follow? How do you, in those moments, view your sin? How do you see yourself as guilty, dirty, broken, Or actually, most importantly of all, what is your view of God in those moments after you've sinned? Do you believe that God is disappointed with you, shaking his head, ashamed of you? Maybe, do you perhaps think that he's overbearing and too strict with his expectations of you, and that's why you fell short again? Or do you see him as angry at you? Fuming. Can't believe that you messed up again. I want to shift our paradigms this morning by looking at the true heart of Jesus for sinners. In other words, his heart for people just like you and like me. When someone in their right mind is about to die, their last words are often quite meaningful. Because they know they have very few words left, and so they choose them carefully. And the people who are left behind will often cherish those words that are spoken, hanging on to them. When Jesus died, his last words carried a huge amount of power and lasting significance. He knew that he only had a handful of words, really a handful of breaths left on earth, and he chose to use several of them to breathe out a series of final words, words that really would alter history and change lives and be cherished by his people down through the ages. This year, leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we'll be looking at the words that, the last words of Jesus. I'm calling this series Crosswords. The words that Christ proclaimed from the cross, and words that I believe should leave a lasting mark on every one of our lives. So today to begin, I'll have us turn to Luke 23 together. So grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 23, and if you're confused about where that is, there's a Bible in the seat, in the bottom of the seat in front of you, and then the page number is on the screen to help you find your way there. 
But at this point in Jesus' story, Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples. He's given his farewell discourse, sermon. He's, he went to pray in anguish in Gethsemane. Judas had led a mob to arrest Jesus, and he was hastily tried before the Jewish leaders for blasphemy. But they couldn't legally execute him. So they brought him to be tried for treason by the Roman governor, Pilate. But Pilate found Jesus innocent, sent him away to be dealt with by the puppet king in the area, Herod. Herod just wanted to be entertained by Jesus and then passed him back to Pilate, who reluctantly made a deal with the Jewish mob to sentence him to death. Jesus was then flogged, beaten, mocked, and paraded off to Calvary. Let's pick up the story today in verse 32. So Luke 23, verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now notice here how, how Luke discreetly doesn't give very many details about crucifixion itself. All four gospel accounts do the same, emphasizing other things about what's going on. In their day, crucifixion was common enough that they didn't need to describe it. And they also likely wanted to avoid being gruesome so as to respect the events that had taken place. However, we're pretty far removed from those days. And if we are to picture these scenes accurately and hear Jesus' words as they were spoken, we do need to understand some of what he would have been experiencing at the cross. The Roman orator Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest and most hideous punishment. Victims were usually flogged like Jesus had been and, and forced to carry the around a 100-pound crossbeam of their cross on their lacerated shoulders all the way to their execution site. There they'd be laid down. Their arms would be tied or nailed to the crossbeam, which was then hoisted up and jolted into place on a permanent upright post forming the cross. There, breathing would become increasingly shallow and painful. But the Romans didn't want people to die quickly. They wanted prolonged agony. So, for example, they would avoid vital arteries with the nails that they crucified people with so as to not allow rapid blood loss. Also, a, a small ledge was on the upright beam to partially, partially support your weight so your body couldn't collapse and perish too quickly. Some victims survived on crosses for days. In the end, you would die from exhaustion, suffocation, blood loss, and or cardiac arrest. Whenever the Romans wanted to put a merciful end to things, they'd break your legs so you could no longer heave yourself up to breathe. 
as we consider the sayings of Jesus from the cross these next several weeks, it is of special relevance that speaking would have been immensely difficult for Christ. So difficult to speak. And that's just the physical torture. A crucifixion was designed to torment and humiliate. You'd be affixed to the cross in nakedness usually, while being constantly ridiculed, knowing that you likely won't be buried in honor, but rather become food for scavenger birds. We, li we live in a time and place where inhumane treatment, even of criminals, is against the law. So it would be hard to even imagine crucifixion happening, let alone being state-sanctioned. Like, this wasn't carried out secretly or scandalously. It was done in the wide-open public, intentionally meant to be horrifying, obscene, repulsive to onlookers. And anyone who was crucified was certain to be seen as loathsome. And this is important to note, as Fleming Rutledge explains, that in an era when crucifixion was still going on and was widely practiced throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were proclaiming a degraded, condemned, crucified person as the Son of God and Savior of the world. By any ordinary standard, and especially by religious standards, this was simply unthinkable. Here is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah. Now I know that the details of the cross can be disturbing. They should be. Right? Today, the, the cross has become a sentimentalized symbol for decorations or jewelry. And that's really okay, because Jesus transformed this symbol into something good. However, we shouldn't overlook what this meant for Jesus. The, the wickedness and cruelty and judgment and shame humiliation, torture, relentless pain. I guess mine must have been consumed by anguish and disorientation, even dread. So picturing all this, let's read the first of his last words here. So they came to the place of the, that is called the skull where they crucified him. Verse 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, if I was on a cross, suffering extreme agony, I can't imagine saying this in a million years. If I got any words out, they'd probably be something like, how dare you? You're going to pay for this. Or, please, put me out of my misery. If I was praying, it would probably be an imprecatory prayer. God, avenge me. I can't imagine looking down at people who just turn me into a bloody pulp 
and praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And yet that's exactly what Jesus shockingly did. Why? I have no answer outside of pure, supernatural, astonishing compassion and mercy. And in this, I believe we can see Christ's heart for sinners, even extreme sinners. And Jesus wants to forgive sinners. Jesus clearly here, he wants to forgive sinners. My wife and I recently got back from an anniversary getaway, and on this trip we had to pack and lug around several bags of luggage. And you know how it is? You can start out a day with a bag that seems pretty light, but by the end of the day the bag seems much heavier, much more of a burden. Now that's very trivial stuff. But there's some, a very serious reality in our lives that is like this. So many people, many of us, are lugging around heavy burdens of guilt, shame, bitterness, pain, anxiety, anger, and offense. And they may have started off feeling pretty small. But over time our hearts have become more and more heavily burdened by them. How many of us have deep regrets for things that happened years ago, even decades ago? How many of us are clinging to grudges over hurts that somebody caused us? How many of us have Avoided people, resisted reconciliation, maybe even switched churches because we can't let go of either guilt or offense. How many of us have tried to fix things ourselves, either with God or with others? And how'd that go? Has it provided you with a lasting peace in your soul? For all of the above, we desperately need to experience and to extend forgiveness. As Robert Nash says, people make jokes, tell lies, and brainwash themselves into thinking they are fine, or that events never happened, or if they did, they are not that big of a deal. However, people don't really move on, they just bury their problems. People come up with do-it-yourself solutions to their hurt and sin and miss God's remedy. Jesus confronts our attempts to fix ourselves and presents the only path of peace. Jesus often spoke of forgiveness during his time on earth. He taught us to pray for it. For example, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors all the while warning us that God will forgive us to the measure that we forgive others. He taught his disciples that there was no limit on how much we ought to forgive. Seventy times seven, over and over and over again. He told powerful parables on it, like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. And he even went around pronouncing forgiveness of sins to various people. But none of this prepares us for this 
stunning extension of forgiveness even to his killers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, let's think about this saying word by word. Okay, so first he says, Father. He's addressing his prayer to God the Father. Question for you. Who is allowed to forgive sins? Well, on one level, we can forgive each other for sins committed against us. That's true. We can do that. But on another level, more importantly, all sin is ultimately committed against God. He is the creator who made the world to operate in a certain way. He is the lawgiver whose law gets trampled on every day. And he is God, worthy of devotion and worship from every creature he's created. So even when we sin against others, we're going against the way God created the world to be. We're breaking his laws of love. We're not living for him. We're actually idolatrously centering our lives around ourselves. Imagine if someone did something to you. Say they stole your bike or your phone. And then one day, you and I together run across this person's path. Okay? But instead of letting you, the aggrieved party, talk, I speak up and I say, hey, that was a nasty thing to do to my friends here. But I forgive you. You'd look at me like I was crazy, right? And you have no right to do that. In the same way, we have no right to forgive people for their crimes against God. It's his divine prerogative. Which is why Jesus told people, why when he told people, your sins are forgiven, people flipped out. It's like, no one can forgive sins but God alone. So as we come to the cross, this is why Jesus prayed to his Father to forgive sinners. Because sinners need forgiveness from God himself or else will face his wrath. But this raises another question for us. Like, why didn't Jesus just forgive them himself? Why did he ask the Father to do it? To forgive if he himself had authority on earth to forgive sins? It's a good question. I think that he certainly could have forgiven if he, if he had chose to. He could have. But he didn't. Maybe he wanted to demonstrate his dependence on his father in these moments. Or also, even though Christ was God, this was likely an example of his emptying himself and choosing to not exercise his divine rights or authority. See, as the, the perfect man, our representative and our substitute, dying in our place, he took our place. He took our position of man pleading with God for mercy. Further, this began fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, that the suffering servant would make intercession for the transgressors. But think about his request. Forgive them. This isn't only what he wanted or desired. He prayed for this. He asked for it to happen. 
Like his dying heart's cry and request was that sinners be forgiven, that they be pardoned of their crimes, that their offenses be overlooked, that they'd receive mercy and grace instead of the judgment that they deserved. Like forgiveness didn't mean forgetting their crimes. It meant not holding them against them. It meant absorbing the pain they were causing and choosing to bear it himself. Jesus' words here also definitely demonstrate his commitment to prayer. Jesus prayed at the beginning of his ministry, and here he is praying at the end of it. Think that carries any lessons for us at all? We tend to look down on prayer, thinking of it as like it's the last resort after we tried every other course of action, or treating it like it's the ministry for old ladies to do once they're physically limited. But Jesus prayed first and frequently. And if Jesus saw prayer as so essential that he intentionally prayed for others, even on the cross, how much more should prayer be vital for mere mortals like us? Like we are dependent on God for everything in our lives. We need him. It's the epitome of pride to think we're okay without him and we don't need to pray. Like, we need forgiveness for our prayerlessness. But even if you are physically limited in what you can do, whether by age or your bodily condition, don't disparage prayer or assume that you're not doing much when you pray. God may be giving you a little bit more time on earth specifically for you to pray and perhaps even accomplish more by that than all your past activity in life. So, who is Jesus praying for in this moment? Father, forgive them. Who's them? In this specific context, there are thought to be three possibilities. The execution squads, the soldiers who are killing them. The authorities who orchestrated the crucifixion. Or the Jewish nation as a whole who failed to welcome their Messiah. Maybe all three. However, it's a kind of a moot question, because the point of these words was much larger. This prayer was representative of Christ's attitude toward all sinners. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And by the end of the day, the Father would answer Jesus' prayer in multiple ways. A thief would believe in Jesus, for example, as being killed next to him. A soldier presiding over the death would confess, truly, this was the Son of God. And if he was referring to the nation as a whole, or, or the world for that matter, his prayer would continue to be answered over the, the next few months as we see 3,000 people repent and believe and were forgiven, baptized at Pentecost. And if you've been forgiven, then this prayer is even being answered to this day. Now, just because, because Jesus prayed this prayer doesn't mean it was automatically answered for everyone. 
People still had to respond to the forgiveness that Jesus secured for them. God offered forgiveness at the cross. But in order to receive his gift, we still have to turn away from our sins and believe in Christ as our Savior. Like the means of forgiveness is accomplished. Reconciliation is freely offered, but it is not guaranteed until Christ is our Lord. But can't you see your need for this? Won't you confess him as Lord today? Jesus being willing to forgive sinners is shocking. Jesus wanting to forgive is even more so. But there's something that makes this forgiveness even more shocking than that. And we can see it in the second half of his prayer. See, Jesus wants to forgive sinners even when we don't know our need. He wants to forgive us even when we don't know our need for him or for God's pardon. Listen again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, ignorance is never an excuse for people's sin. Notice, they still needed to be forgiven, right? Even for sins committed in ignorance. But this is maybe surprisingly what Jesus, Jesus appealed to as the basis for forgiveness. For they know not what they do. In modern English, they don't know. They have no idea what they're doing. This could be taking, Jesus taking pure pity on people. Or maybe in the absence of repentance so far, he appealed to mitigating circumstances. Like the, the soldiers, for example, didn't, truly didn't know that they were killing an innocent man sent by God. But sin is sin, whether or not we ever recognize it as sin. And sin requires atonement. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words were echoed by Peter at Pentecost when he preached, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. What were they doing? What were they actually doing? What did Jesus want forgiven? Think about it. It was arguably the worst crime in the history of the world. The evil, brutal execution of the innocent God-man himself. As A.W. Pink describes it, man had done his worst the one by whom the world was made had come into it, but the world knew him not. The Lord of glory had tabernacled among men, but he was not wanted. The eyes which sin had blinded saw in him no beauty that he should be desired. Again and again his enemies attempted his destruction, and now their vile desires are granted them. The fell deed has been done. No ordinary death would suffice for his implacable foes. A death of intense suffering and shame was decided upon. A cross had been secured. The Savior 
had been nailed to it. And Jesus prayed these words knowing that things would get worse yet. Look how it continues. Right after he said this, it says, They cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Even if they may have been aware of certain things they were doing, like they knew they were being cruel, mocking, and killing, for example, they, still, they didn't know the enormity and gravity of their crime. They had no clue. And it's there at the lowest point of humanity's evil that we see Jesus' lips moving. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Even though we weren't present there at Calvary, Every one of us has sins that need to be forgiven and blotted out. We have pride, ingratitude, unbelief, idolatry, blasphemy, sacrilege, disobedience of authorities, hatred, rage, lust, sexual immorality, Stealing, lying, coveting, and much more. Just because you might not have been aware that those were crimes against God doesn't make you innocent of them. There is so much we don't know that we do. And therefore, we're, we're repeating this tragedy if we were aware of all our sinful words and actions and motives and attitudes, I think we'd be crippled with the horror of it all. Our evil is far greater than we know. Besides, we have plenty of sins we still do willingly and fully consciously. These words from Jesus should show his compassion on you in the midst of your guilt and your shame. He looks on you and has pity on you. His compassion runs deeper than our sin. And God's standard is so high, impossibly high for us to reach. Our rebellion runs so deep. Our need is unimaginably great. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sins sent Christ to the cross just as much as the rulers or the crowds or the soldiers' sins did then. But if those sins of murdering the Son of God could be forgiven, so can all of yours. 
So here I'm praying over you today. Father, forgive him. Forgive her. Forgive them. They know not what they do. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious sight. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If you've never come to the cross and accepted God's forgiveness before, I pray that you would do that today. You don't know how great your need is. You don't know how awful your neglect of God is or your spurning of Christ and his mercy or your refusal to receive grace or your rejection of Jesus' rule or your indifference to this vital issue of your soul. And yet, your eyes may be opening up a bit right now. Like they knew not what they were doing. That's not totally true of you anymore. And the Spirit of God can help us know our great need, even in these moments. So what will you do about it? Really, the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you receive him as Lord and Savior, or will you reject him as a raving nutcase? The truth is, He didn't rage against you, even if that's what you deserved. He didn't seek vengeance for your vileness. He prayed for your pardon. Some of us here may not need reminded of our need. Because your sin haunts you. You feel just constantly bogged down by your persistent sin. Can't seem to ditch it or defeat it for good. Unless you feel that constant guilt. I've been there many times myself, feeling down and out, ashamed, condemned. Truly, may we all hear Jesus' heart for sinners like us in these words of forgiveness. As Robert Nash says, forgiveness does not come cheap. Forgiveness acknowledges sin and hurt and brokenness and pain. It does not ignore the hurt or pretend everything is back to how it used to be. Instead, it absorbs the hurt and the cost. Jesus did not forgive with mere words. He forgave on the cross. Forgiveness was infinitely expensive. Jesus gave his life. He embraced the cross out of love. He did that for you. His action resonated within his heart. His heart was one of compassion, not rancor or rage or revenge. We eavesdrop on his plea for forgiveness at the cross and hear his heart of mercy. He has a fierce love for wayward people. Do you believe that? Because it's true. So, when you sin, how do you view God? I think, I believe we should picture Christ being crucified. 
and see that with arms outstretched, not crying out for vengeance or justice, but crying out for mercy. Don't give in to to self-condemnation because Jesus isn't condemning you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing we can do, whether in our minds or hearts or with our mouths or bodies, that is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, beyond the reach of Jesus' prayers. And by the way, this isn't just Jesus and God the Father is different. Jesus is reflecting the heart of God to us. His love is infinite. And really there is no one beyond his reach. As Jesus prayed, he was practicing what he preached in Luke 6, to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. At Calvary, he didn't pray for virtuous, upright people. He prayed for sadistic murderers. He prayed that the Father would show mercy on even them. They weren't beyond him. And seeing his example, may the Spirit empower us to follow it ourselves. I guarantee we will see plenty of people still mistreating our Lord today. Father, forgive them, should cause us to see no one as beyond his mercy. Some of you have loved ones or friends who are far away from Jesus right now. Don't give up on them. Keep praying. I hear Jesus praying over them. Father, forgive them. And may that fill our own eyes with compassion. Fill our own mouths with the gospel. And don't forget where you came from. Don't forget, we were all once enemies of the cross of Christ. We were all actively hostile toward God and his ways, opposing his rule over us. We corrupted his creation. We flaunted his laws. We we spat in his face. But it was right there at our lowest point, while we were still sinners, that God demonstrated his astounding love for us, and Christ died for us. Like, we all need forgiveness. Kids, you need forgiveness. Seasoned saints, so do you. And everyone in between. And Jesus' cry here tells us that if we will have it, we have his forgiveness. It's there for the taking. If we can keep this gospel truth at the forefront of our minds, that we are forgiven sinners. It should help us follow Jesus' example of forgiveness as well. His words have now been echoed by his followers throughout the ages. Stephen, as he was being stoned, prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the temple roof, but didn't die right away. He rose to his knees and is said to have prayed, I beg of you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. 
in more recent times, Ugandan Bishop Festo Kivinjir saw the violent dictator Idi Amin wreak havoc in his home country, killing some of his closest friends in the process. Later, he wrote a book called I Love Idi Amin, in which he said, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they, do, they know not what they do. As evil as Idi Amin is, how can I do less toward him? No, we won't likely have anyone crucify us or even want to kill us anytime soon. But we will absolutely have plenty of people who mistreat us to varying degrees. And it is this very act of Christ on the cross that provides the impetus, the motivation for us to forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Like if God forgave the people who crucified his beloved son, which includes us, how could we not forgive those who hurt us? How could we do any less? But do we? forgive them? Or do we more often run away from the pain or the conflict? Or maybe do we brush it off and act like nothing happened that needs to be dealt with? It's disingenuous, if not dishonest. Certainly not forgiveness. Do we make the choice to not count someone's sins against them? To not hold a grudge. Do we decide that we won't bring it back up or hold it over their heads? Like there may still be a need for wise boundaries to protect you from further abuse. But will we forgive even the worst evils done to us as our Lord forgave the worst evils done to him? Will we forgive others when they don't know what they're doing to us? Or worse, when they do know, they do it anyway. Jesus is our perfect example of forgiveness, even in the midst of unimaginable pain. Like I can't pretend to know what you've experienced or how badly you've been hurt in life, but I do know that it was less than what Jesus went through. And can you hear him praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and, pray, and say in your heart, Jesus, help me do the same. And that's a, a great prayer to pray, even right now. God, this seems impossible. Help me. Help me to follow you. Knowing Jesus' forgiveness can give us power to forgive from our hearts as well. Because our natural inclinations are not to do this. Our natural inclinations are to fight back, to hurt and return, to run away, or maybe to, to curl up in a ball of self-pity. It's not easy to choose forgiveness while people are mistreating you. As Eric Raymond says, when I sense that I've been wronged, I tend to feel the most justified in being ugly with people. This feels like the time for self-vindicating judgment, not self-sacrificing forgiveness. 
by the grace of God, we can grow to be people who are willing to forgive others, even in the most heated times, because we worship a Savior who does this very thing. Jesus is the model and motivation for our forgiveness. So I hope that that you leave here today hearing the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, being pronounced over you. Embrace it today. Fully assured of the love of Christ. Rejoicing in it. Don't doubt his affections for you. Don't remain in the shame of whatever has happened in your past. Like long before any of that happened, Jesus said, Father, forgive. Don't be afraid of being found out as a failure. Welcome to the club. Don't you like your sin, your guilt, your shame, the and all of their accompanying anxieties can be obliterated by the cross of Christ once and for all. Experience forgiveness and then extend it to others as freely as it was extended to you. Because this is Jesus' attitude toward you even to this day. Do you know that he's still praying for us in heaven? Standing before his father and saying, Father, forgive them. And not just because we're ignorant, but because his blood has been shed. Like, look at my atoning sacrifice, Father. Their debt is paid in full. So, Father, forgive them. Cleanse them. Pour out your grace, your mercy upon them. Forgive them. So they can know what they ought to do. Let's pray. Father, as we've heard Jesus Christ today, may you hear our cries to forgive us for all of our failures to live your way for all of the hurts we have caused others, for all our prayerlessness, for all our bitterness. Lord, would you wipe it clean today? Heal our hearts and help Jesus' words continue to change us day by day as we grow into his likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.